Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Another edition of Theology Matters, and we have a special Monday edition. Here it is, 3 o'clock on the East Coast, and uh, we normally do the show on, try to do it on Thursdays, uh, but we had a, have a special show we wanted to do uh, for you guys. It's going to be a very um, interesting dialogue. Um, it was last Sunday, not yesterday, but the day uh, week before. Uh, news broke of the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff, uh, had joined the Orthodox Church. And, uh, man, this was like a, an earthquake in the evangelical uh, world especially, and I think within in the Orthodox and even Catholic, Roman Catholic world. And uh, a lot of uh, articles, a lot of interviews, just a lot of, um, a lot of commotion uh, ha- happened as a result of that. And, um, you know, one of the things I kept seeing on social media was people curious, what is what is the Orthodox Church believe? What is their uh, views? And so uh, I have a good friend uh, that recently joined the Orthodox Church, fairly recently, I think within the last year or so. We can ask him and, and check. Um, but um, I thought it would be good to bring him on, who's someone who's a former Protestant, and um, give you a little background about uh, my friend uh, Gary Andriano, which I guess his church name is Ambrose. Uh, He is a former Protestant uh, who 
fairly recently joined the Orthodox Church. Um, he wrote a blog. Let me pull this blog up here, titled uh, "The Hotel: Why I Checked Out of Protestantism." And uh, in this blog, Gary gives uh, several reasons as to uh, why he left Protestantism, and um, thought it would be good to bring him on and uh, have a discussion. Uh, Gary is currently a student at Liberty University. He's working on a degree uh, in biblical and theological stutter, studies. Uh, he's also the founder of uh, Patristics and host of the Patristics podcast. Uh, his major interests are patristic exegesis and church history and hermeneutics. So he's a he's a sharp guy. He's a good friend, and uh, really really happy he uh, came on and, and joined us. Um, joining us also will be uh, Nathan Taylor, and uh, we've had uh, Nate on a few times in the past. He's done some debates um, with uh, Chris Date on annihilationism. He uh, probably the most well-known debate he did was against Devin Rose uh, from Catholic Answers. That was a very good debate and uh, got a lot of uh, reaction from both both sides, so be sure to check that out on our page. Uh, but Nate is a pastor at Hidden Valley, Hidden Valley Presbyterian Church in Utah. Uh, has completed an MDiv at Westminster Seminary in California. Enjoys spending time with his, his daughter and his, and his wife. Now, this isn't going to be a structured uh, debate, but more or less um, a dialogue. Uh, we're going to look at several points that our friend Gary has brought up, and I'm just going to moderate and kind of let them have a discussion on some of those some of those points. So, uh, gentlemen, are you guys both there? Yes, yes. I'm here. <laughs> Okay, Nate, uh, Nate. I guess I'll I'll go to you first. Um, did I leave anything out of the intro? Is there there anything you wanted to add or or anything you wanted to say? Um, you know, we... Yeah, it's my understanding. So just to be clear, I'm supposed to be giving a uh, intro right now to my view or to how I became Christian or my background. Um, just a quick kind of background: how you got interested in this uh, discussion with um, with orthodoxy and. And um, oh, just, I guess, gotcha. some of the reasons you see why Protestant theology is um, important and, and why, why this is a big issue, I guess. Sure, sure. Well, um, I actually have been a Christian for about 13 years uh, right about now, and it should be around the time of year when I've been total for 13 years a follower of Christ. Uh, I was more of a Pascalian agnostic beforehand, um, you know, just I would go to church occasionally, but I didn't really believe uh, uh, the claims of Christ. I just went as an, a fire insurance policy, if you will. Um, but so I was an agnostic, and through the um, apologetic works of Greg Bonson um, and other, um, you know, historical apologetics for the resurrection and so forth, I became convinced that Christianity was true, and so if it's true, I should devote my entire life to following it, defending it, and proclaiming it. So uh, I haven't really looked back since, but uh, my experience with kind of Eastern Orthodoxy uh, started at Biola University where I picked up um, my bachelor's degree in theology. And I had friends that were in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and I had a friend who considered leaving Protestantism uh, over it and going to, instead of being evangelical Christian, going to the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. 
And so uh, in many years of dialoguing with them, um, I found their claims to be uh, philosophically inadequate, uh, biblically inadequate as well. Um, And so I did not join, nor did my my friend. Um, So that's what I found there. And I think for us, I think the central issues uh, surrounded uh, on the nature of God and the being of God, how uh, I believe Eastern Orthodoxy has a, I think, fundamentally different view of God than I would have. And then also about the issue of authority, private interpretation, and Scripture alone. Um, and uh, looking at what the Bible claims about itself as the, uh, with respect to special revelation, the only infallible rule for faith and practice. I saw that in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 6, and in Acts 17. It was very clear to me, and my Orthodox friends didn't have any good response to don't go beyond Scripture. I mean, it just kind of says it. So um, that was why I remained Protestant, and also because of the Gospel, because of the Eastern Orthodox use of the Atonement, um, uh, it not always being or not being a propitiation, um, a substitutionary atonement, and uh, also their rejection of sola fide, uh, justification by faith alone, which I think is clearly taught in Romans 3 and 4. Um, the Orthodox view, as I understand it, is God can only declare you righteous when you actually are righteous, intrinsically righteous. But the biblical teaching in Romans 4 5 is that God declares you righteous when you are ungodly. And that's it. the reason why God can do that is because Christ was righteous for us in our place. And so that's the reason why I've maintained a Protestant position. Okay, good enough. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. Um, Gary, uh, what I'll have you do is just kind of give a little intro to yourself, and I'll let you just go ahead and take uh, five, uh, ten minutes if you need it, and just kind of um, talk about your own journey and some of the things that uh, maybe convinced you that Protestantism was, uh, was an error, and then we will uh, jump uh, into your blog, if that's good with you. Sure. Um, well, to begin, I want to preface things by saying that neither I nor Hank Hanegraaff speak on behalf of orthodoxy itself. We are just a couple of orthodox people. You know, we don't hold any kind of authority. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll engage in... Uh, I, I did want to say that I the the blog I wrote is not meant to be interpreted as a polemic against Protestantism. Um, it is primarily just me going through my my own thoughts and just thought processes of how I discovered my shield to have cracks in it my Protestant shield, and that shield being the various theological arguments that I had to defend what I believed. So like I said, it's not like I'm attacking Protestantism with a sword as if it were a polemic, but it's more of just me being honest with my former beliefs and sharing that with the world. So I wanted to get that out of the way first because I'm not angry with Protestants or Protestantism. Um, as far as my background, I grew, I pretty much grew up with a knowledge of Christ and 
believing that Jesus was God. My my dad kind of raised my brother and I in Christianity. And even though I didn't always follow Christ very well, I always believed in Christ and always considered myself a Christian. So, um, And I've went through like so many different denominations, like started out in Assemblies of God, then went went through a bunch of Calvary Chapel denominations or Calvary Chapel churches and um, went through charismatic churches and Presbyterian and all kinds of reformed uh, churches. And um, so I've seen a lot and uh, like I've, I've even been through, Devin remembers the stage of my life where I've been through uh fundamentalist King James only uh, views and so I've seen the spectrum on a wide scale like I've been through both sides the the extreme conservative sides and then the more free spirited charismatic sides of things so um, I very much speak from uh, experiential knowledge of these things and um, and trying to analyze them Um, so, Devin, did you want me to just start going through the, the article I well, wrote, or? I'll tell you what, if, if that, if, if you're good with that, um, because we are somewhat short on time, in fact, we may do two shows on this, if you guys are up for it, um, if you like, instead of having you read the, the thing, do you want to just kind of jump into some of the, the reasons, and I can, I can, uh, was going to go through a few of the reasons, quote a little bit from your blog, uh, give you a minute or two to just uh, develop some of those thoughts and then let you and Nate have a discussion if that's okay. Sure. Okay, and again, folks, for those wanting to check out uh, the article, and uh, we'd, I would also recommend uh, check out Gary's, uh, let me call you Gary or Ambrose. I don't want to be offensive to you. No, you can do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. Um, but he uh, he does have a have a have a really good blog and uh, is doing a podcast now. Uh, this article is called "The Hotel: Why I Checked Out of Protestantism," and he he starts by saying, uh, "My departure from Protestantism was a change that occurred very slowly over the course of multiple years." Uh, however, before I begin talking about the problems, I found myself. I have found in my examination Protestantism, um, which are largely uh, my reasons for leaving. And then the first reason um, you give, Gary, is uh, authority. And uh, just I'll quote real quick from this and let you kind of develop it. You say, uh, quote, the history uh, and spirit of Protestantism is that of rebellion. Because of certain doctrines and ecclesiastical authority, Protestants have no interpretive authority outside of themselves. This reality is ironic because if you spend only one year in any evangelical church, you inevitably hear sermons that emphasize the importance of submission. Because of its views on authority, Protestantism has a very odd relationship with the idea of submission. Evangelical churches know they are called to submit in an abstract sense, but at the same time, when it comes to church authority and hermeneutics, they seem to acknowledge no one to be worthy enough to receive their submission. 
They are, quote, fallible men, after all. Instead of evangelical Protestant, uh, will merely submit to the idea of being called to submit, uh, because it is biblical, rather than sub- submit to an organized clergy system. So uh, did you want to develop that uh, any farther or um, add to that? I I guess I would add to add to anything once I hear uh, maybe Nate's response to it, or I'll just go after okay. him. Okay, that'll work. Um, so what we'd like is just to, to give you guys uh, a chance just to dialogue for 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll move to the next uh, issue. And so, Nate, I'll let you spell out some of the issues you see with this and let you guys just have a conversation. Great. Sure. Thank you, Devin. Yeah, so, um, Gary, as I, as I see it, um, so I'm a Presbyterian, uh, but I'm an evangelical Bible-believing Christian. I hold the Westminster mm-hmm. Standards. Uh, I believe the church has uh, a general sense of reliability such that it warrants uh, it to be uh, authoritative. So I believe in church authority. I believe that uh, the church has fallible authority. It's generally reliable, but not infallibly reliable. Um, similar to how a father has authority over um, his, his son or daughter, but the father can be sinful or make mistakes, and, but have a general sense of reliability. Um, about them now, I'm I'm not. Uh, I, I read your article. I'm not really clear as to what's problematic about that. About what in particular? Yeah, uh, everything I just said, which is what I was, which is basically the standard uh, kind of traditional Reformational Protestant view of authority that I just outlined. I don't see why why that's not really an authority. You know, I mean, a father has authority say over a son. Right, we would say that's real authority that a father has over a son. It's in the Bible in uh, Ephesians five. The husband has authority over the wife, albeit not in, infallible. So there's an authority there. So if the Protestant Church possesses that kind of authority, uh, why 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 think that not really a, not really authority or a problematic? Form? I'm just I'm not really clear. Well, I wasn't I wasn't stating that Protestantism doesn't have authority generally i was okay. saying that uh protestantism uh and by protestantism i'm in- incorporating all denominations uh sure that that there's no interpretive authority so for example like you you would say you know the presbyterian church is your authority system but that's only one yes. interpretive tradition within the broader protestantism and so like that's that's more the the issue I'm getting at there. Yeah, so so we're talking about cracks in the shield, but it seems like the cracks I have in my shield are the same cracks you have in yours. Let me flesh it out for you briefly. So mm-hmm. there's there's the Roman Catholic Church, there's the Oriental Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Ori- Oriental Orthodox Church, I should say. Excuse me. So you have Rome, you have the Oriental, which is different than the. Eastern Orthodox Church or Greek Orthodox Church, which I'm assuming you're part of. You're a part of the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the Oriental, right? Yes. Okay. So Oriental, Rome, so you've got Jehovah's Witness Watchtower. They claim infallible sword. You've got the uh, – I'm here in Utah. You've got the uh, LDS Church, which claims this sort of infallible authority. Uh, I mean, there are probably over 100 Pentecostal cults 
that claim uh, infallible authority and claim the sort of church authority that you would have. Um, so, like, I don't understand, because Rome makes a claim of having this sort of church authority. Your, your church makes that claim. The Oriental Orthodox makes that claim. Instead of the Cantus, which is a Roman Catholic offshoot, makes such a claim. Um, so, to me, it sounds like you, you, have, you just picked out one authoritative tradition, just as I have picked out one authoritative tradition. So, I'm not really seeing the meaningful difference here. Maybe you can help me see that. Yeah, well, um, it, like all of my um, all of my points are kind of interconnected, so uh-huh. that would that would then like relate to the problem of history and uh-huh. getting into and diving into history and and being educated on like what actually happened and how these things sure. came about, and so um, you know. People know generally that Protestantism is is an offshoot of Catholicism, but I, I wouldn't equate the various Protestant denominations as being the same thing as like you know the the Greek Orthodox Church or you know in in relation to the Oriental churches like those those are not just uh, like those are not separate in the same way a Presbyterian church is different than the Catholic Church or even a Baptist Church, like those aren't the same types of differences. Because right, right. So when you say Protestantism is an offshoot of Catholicism, though, that presupposes that Catholicism was a true church all along, and that Protestantism has an offshoot from it. Which I wouldn't grant. I would say that Catholicism is an offshoot of Protestantism. Um, so I would, you know, it's how you interpret the facts, I guess, which is what it comes down to. And so I would say that. There's abundant evidence in the Church Fathers for Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide. We'd say Protestant doctrines are there in the Church Fathers um, and in the Scriptures, which is probably the most important since uh, the Bible teaches Sola Scriptura, the earliest Church document. So I would actually I'd be interested to hear that, more about why you think that. But why oh, you think I would, the, yeah, uh, of course. The Protestants are... I mean, do you want, do you want Church Fathers? No, I'm, I'm do you, saying... Do like, you guys... Um, hold on. Hold on one second, because we've got all of those um, all those things coming up. So maybe before we jump on to to solo yeah. scriptura, I think that's that's coming up. Um, maybe we can finish this this discussion here of the of the authority. Uh, Nate, you had asked about uh, w- with the cracks in the shields. Maybe restate the question just to help us get back sure. on track, and then we'll we'll move to the next uh, issue. Sure. Yeah, I, I I guess what I'm asking you said that that the way that that Presbyterians are different than Catholics are different than the way um, that the Oriental Orthodox are different from the Eastern Orthodox. Well, they're both church break-offs. They don't have communion with one another. Um, you know, so, uh, I mean, that's that's a pretty stark difference. You can't have communion in an Oriental Orthodox church. I mean, so I, that's, pretty, that's pretty interesting. If you're going by that standard of communion, then, I mean, I can have communion in a Baptist church um, or a Pentecostal church. So, I mean, it's, uh, I'm not really I'm not really clear as to why this is problematic or why this counts as some mounting huge argument against Protestants when it seems like you have these multiple churches making the same claims that the Eastern Orthodox Church makes to be this one true infallible church and there's different churches out there so if different denominations undermine my claim then different true churches undermine your claim I just can't see how 
that, that, that doesn't, you know, blow back on, on your position as well. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what I wrote here. Let me see. Um, well, like you said, because, you know, I, I wouldn't have to mean in, in a oriental orthodox church. Like, while that's true, and while the two are not in communion with one another, um, mm-hmm. it it doesn't change the fact that both both churches see communion in the same way, and their theology is, and and more importantly, their liturgical methodology is nearly identical, and and there's just a minor difference when you get into the whole monophysitism and all that, which at this yeah, point in history I, I, I is almost seen as semantics. Difference. Yeah. I mean, Christ bearer versus uh, God bearer. I mean, that I would say that if you say that, that if you deny Jesus being, uh, that Mary was, was the Theotokos, I think that's pretty severe. Um, so, yes, I mean, rejecting I mean, a, saying, a fourth ecumenical council sounds like a pretty big difference to me. Yeah, but... I'm saying at this point in history, it's seen more and more as largely semantics that they don't actually believe what has been said that they believe. So that could change in the future, but 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 it hasn't. But getting yeah. back to it's still the same. When I when I talk to Oriental Orthodox, they they still uh, have those differences. Uh, it just depends on which one you talk to, of course. I know there are some uh, leaders that would like that unity, but there are some that don't. As I'm sure you're aware. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's not this sort of uh, complete unity. Obviously, if there was, then you would have communion with them. Um, so there's still severe enough differences to where there's not communion. You can't have communion in their church, but I can go down to the local Baptist church here in Utah, and they would let me have communion there. Right, but again, that's largely because the way the way Presbyterians and Baptists see communion is very different yep. from the way yeah. Orthodoxy sees communion. So you're, you're right Orthodox, about that. Yeah. yeah, it's not just you know we believe in Jesus and we are remembering his death. Let's eat some bread and wine. It's you know it's a mystical uh, issuing of grace. So it's it's not it's it's different. Well, it, it is in some senses, not in others. So I would say that Baptist, Methodist. Um, Pentecostals, certain Pentecostals, not the oneness. Um, I'd say non-denominational churches, many of them, are all part of the one body of Christ. We're united in, in faith and grace in Jesus Christ. And so we share that union. And um, we also, uh, we, I mean, I believe personally that the communion is a means of grace. Um, so I wouldn't disagree with that on that point. And talk to many Baptists uh, who feel that way as well. Um, there's differences there, obviously. But the point, the point being is that that doesn't make them heretics such that they're not outside of the mystical body of Christ or the, the, we're all united in Christ. Uh, we don't hold to a, um, I guess, a unified ecclesiastical unity, but a, a spiritual unity, and that's, that's expressed in uh, certain ecclesiastical bodies um, because of sin and corruption in, in this life, I would say. All right. Did you want to go to the right. next point, or 
Yeah, let's let's do that. Uh, the second point is that of uh, the problem of history, and uh, Gary, you say uh, the problem is in practice. Uh, Protestants have adopted sola scriptura at the expense of history and tradition. Uh, if one allows themselves to believe scripture, as interpreted by oneself, uh, is all that matters, then it is no wonder why there is so much division. If you ask the average Protestant to start with Jesus and quickly name all the church leaders up to the present day, uh, they will say something like, Jesus, the Apostles, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, and my dad. <laughs> if they are of a more Arminian tradition, just replace Calvin and Spurgeon with Wesley and Finney. Uh, the point is, in 2,000 years of history, the only practice source, I'm sorry, patristic source, people can name is Augustine. And that was eye-opening to me. It shows how most Protestant traditions are not educating people about basic uh, history. And I think, Nate, you'd probably agree with that last uh, line, but I'll kick it to you yep. and let you and uh, Gary have a have a dialogue. Gary, did you want to add anything to that? or No. You just want to wait for Nate to make a response, and then sure. you, you respond back? Yep. Okay, great. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, so I would say that, like, the Protestant church is uh, supported by uh, history and tradition. Um, but that, and it, that history and tradition has a, a sort of authority in the Protestant church and the PCA, which I'm a part of, but it does not have an infallible authority. It has a fallible authority. The only sole infallible authority is Scripture, as the Bible teaches. Um, do not go beyond Scripture, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.6. So um, given that, and given that I think that the Church Fathers, uh, not all of them, but uh, many of them taught sola fide and taught sola scriptura, I don't consider myself somehow um, a Johnny-come-lately in in my views. My my views have been around, I believe, since the beginning, and I defy any Catholic or Protestant to give me one quotation from one of the Church Fathers that will say that tradition is on the same authoritative level than scripture on the same level. That, that, um, those are my thoughts on that. You want to respond, Gary? Uh, let's see. So, can you repeat the last part you said? Uh, I defy any Catholic or Orthodox to give me one portion of the, of the Church Fathers where they say that scripture is on the same level. You know, I'm sorry, tradition is on the same level as a scripture, such that the scripture would be the infallible word of God and that tradition would have that same unique level of authority. Um, Well, for one, I don't think that would ever be explicitly taught by any church father because uh, tradition was just assumed. And, well, for one, like the, uh, when the New Testament talks about scripture, it's talking about the Old Testament. So when the church first began, uh, the New Testament writings were going around, which with the exception of like the epistles of Paul, the gospels and everything began as oral tradition, which was then later written down. So the, the problem with a lot, of, a lot of modern scholarship, which is changing on looking back at the first century, is we tend to read an anachronistic, like we read history in an anachronistic way by thinking that 
these cultures were just sitting around reading books. Like this was an oral culture and oral tradition was the majority of what you were taught. So you can read any one of Paul's epistles, but the majority of, let's say, like the church of Philippi or Corinth, the majority of what they were taught was oral. Like it wasn't just those one, like one or two letters. Um, so you can't, you can't just limit the content to what was explicitly written down. Um, and also you said, <clears throat> you said to have evidence of church fathers that say scripture and tradition are equal. Um, for one, uh, scripture and tradition aren't the same thing, so they can't, like, they can't be opposed to one another. Tradition in authority. is an interpretive, is an interpretive authority for, for scripture. Um, yep. So, it's not about like, you know, believing scripture or believing tradition. It's believing scripture in light of tradition. Um, I'm not saying that, the that same the things. Difference. I'm saying that they have the same authority, that they have the same authority. That's what I was saying. Right, but it's, like, it, it's nice to believe that Scripture has authority, but Scripture as interpreted by who? Like, the devil quotes the Bible. That doesn't make it authoritative. Right. Uh, well, he, the, the, he was misusing. Uh, if you're referring to sorry, the um, the temptation of Christ, that's he's misusing mm-hmm. and taking out of context. Right. But right. I mean, of but, course, you can do that with church fathers, right? I'm saying, but we know he's misusing it because we have a specific hermeneutic to judge what the devil is saying. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so just yeah, because people use mis- the Bible. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying people can misuse the Bible. They can mis- misuse the church fathers. They can misuse the newspaper. Um, they can um, misuse Huckleberry Finn to, to make it say something it's not. People do that all the time, uh, whether it's the Bible or the church fathers. Um, you know, you said according to whose interpretation. Well, I mean, whose, whose interpretation would it be besides me? You'd say, well, it's um, Cyril Jerusalem's interpretation. Well, that may be true, but you have to interpret Cyril Jerusalem then. Or um, you have to uh, interpret Athanasius. So you're still having to interpret Athanasius. You're still having to um, interpret Clement of Rome. So the fallible private or personal interpretation process never really escapes here. Um, and so that's that. Then when I was talking about them being the, the, the same, not identical in all respects, um, but just have the same level of authority. Not that oral tradition or uh, church teaching is identical to uh, the content of scripture. And just, just so I can, I don't know if I heard you wrong or maybe it's over the phone or something, but did you say that the early church, like as in the first century Christians, didn't believe the New Testament was scripture? Is, is that what you said? No, I said when scripture refers, when, when the New Testament writings speak of the word scriptures, they're referring to the Old Testament scriptures. In every case? I mean, you can make the argument that, you know, Peter said that people were calling Paul's epistle scriptures, but 
aside from that, the majority of the time they're referring to the Old Testament. No, there's another case too. Um, in First Timothy five eighteen, you have um, you have Paul quoting Luke as scripture. So it's not just the Pauline epistles; it's the Gospels too. And so if those are considered scriptures, then yeah, I, I don't. I just I, I just didn't understand what you were saying there. It didn't really make much sense to me because if you read through the New Testament, you'll know that there there are those cases where it does refer to the New Testament as scripture. And uh, about it being oral culture, that's true, and that's why Paul says, "Hey, you got to read these epistles in um, every town you're in. You know, have, have them read everywhere." So yeah, they, they would have been told things orally, read from scripture. Uh, what other source would they go if scripture is the only infallible rule for faith and practice? They're going to be reading uh, the Pauline epistles. They'll be reading uh, gospel, the Luke and uh, other gospels, and they'll be reading uh, other other uh, apostolic letters. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that it was an oral culture doesn't negate the fact that the scripture was the central thing. That's why uh, that's why the New Testament has over 5,800 uh, Greek manuscripts because they cared so much about the written word of God. Um, and the church fathers quoted scripture so much that you, we can, re, we can uh, redo the entire New Testament just by appeal to the church fathers. So that scripture didn't have a central place uh, is a bit weird to me. And also the New Testament itself recognizes itself as scripture. And Paul says in First Thessalonians uh, 3, he says, uh, it's not the word of man I came to you, it's the word of God. I, I came speaking to you the word of God. So Paul was recognized as speaking the word of God, which as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, is, um, is, is exactly what Scripture is, breathed out by God. So I don't see a real difference here, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, and that's fine. And my, my, I guess my point in saying that was that, um, like, Scripture is not authoritative just because it's, you know, a, a, a magical text. It is authoritative because of its uh, connection to the person of Christ. And the, the inspiration is directly related to that relationship to Christ. So, in to God, the, right? Yeah, in I mean, this, the word of God is, is related to God. Yeah, it gets its authority from God. Right. I don't know anybody who would yeah. disagree with that. Yeah, it's pretty obvious mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, so, um, so you, were you interested in seeing the um, quotes from the, the church fathers, which... Uh, prove sola scriptura? Is that what you were saying, asking me before? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't quite get that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll say it again. Yeah, so I was wondering, were you asking me to provide uh, text from the church fathers that would prove that they held to um, sola scriptura? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, so... Um, I have one here, Athanasius of Alexandria from uh, 296 to 373. And uh, this is after he outlines the books of the Bible. He says, These are fountains of salvation that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. In these alone, in these alone, is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. Let no man add to these, neither let him uh, take out uh, from these, for concerning these, the Lord put to shame the Sadducees and said, "Ye do error, not knowing the Scriptures." He reproved the Jews, saying, "Search the Scriptures, for these uh, are they that testify of me." And that was Athanasius. And then another one I have, really quickly, is um, is here from uh, Gregory of Nyssa. After he makes the point explicitly 
um, in a letter that the Arians were claiming that their tradition or custom did not allow for the Trinitarian position. Um, and uh, Gregory responds in the following way. He says, what then is our reply? We do not think that it is right to make their prevailing custom the law and their rule of sound doctrine. For if custom is to avail for proof of soundness, we too surely may advance our prevailing custom. And if they reject this, we are surely not bound to follow theirs. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire. The scripture is the umpire. And the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. And just so you think I'm not like a, you know, a novice hitting this off here, um, I mean, if you look at, for instance, uh, Jane D. Kelly, uh, who is a, uh, is, a, is, a, is a scholar of early uh, patristics and that kind of thing. Um, this is what he says. Um, Further, it was everywhere taken for granted for any doctrine to win acceptance, it first had to be established at scriptural basis. It first had to be established at scriptural basis. So that's exactly what I believe. I believe that church has tradition, um, and that we should, should take that into consideration as a fallible authority. But I think the the um, as Gregory Nyssa said, it's the empire. It's that which decides which doctrines are true or false. Yeah, um, that that quote you had from Athanasius, what where was that from? Let me scroll down here and look at the notes I have here. Um, it is from um, his uh, festal letter, thirty nine six through seven. That's interesting because in that same letter, he he says that he when he lists the books that he thought were canonical. Mm-hmm. He does not have the book of Esther in his canon, but he mm-hmm. does have Baruch. Now, yeah. um, would you agree with his canon? And do you think that the book of Esther is not canonical? Well, so uh, that would be a problem if I held that Athanasius was infallible, which I don't. I think he's wrong about things. Um I, as, as you would say, also, the Eastern Orthodox think that it's not any individual church father who's infallible. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong about that because uh, jo- Josephus um, cites what the Jews held to. And uh, Baruch was not in there, and Esther was. Um, and, uh, that, and Jesus himself, who was resurrected and vindicated his deity, uh, proclaims in the last chapter of Luke the uh the law the psalms and uh the writings um and the, i'm sorry the, the psalms the writings and the law and that threefold division uh it didn't it didn't contain baruch so i would say that yeah that 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 athanasius was wrong about that and he knew greek really well but he was not uh, acquainted with josephus and uh jewish customs uh to to where it would be pretty obvious why we, why he would make that mistake no one's no one's perfect and the other thing is, um, so, I, I, well, I would say Athanasius did not have a ecclesial context of a modern-day Presbyterian. Like, he, the statements he made about the scriptures were said within the context of 
a a type of Christianity that is um, living in a liturgical model and how the scriptures were used specifically for worship in the liturgy and not to have just simply reading at home for an intellectual advancement. So, well, uh, th- I that's, think a, there are that's a different things... topic than, 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 than what I, that's, that's different than what I was directly talking about. I was just giving uh, evidence uh, there that he did hold the soul scripture. I don't agree with everything he said, but that's just one of the evidences, one of the many evidences. I mean, there's, there's piles of uh, sola scriptura quotes from the church fathers. I don't, I don't agree with everything well, they said, even, even as you don't. So, I mean, addressing that point on sola scriptura, I'm more curious about your response to those texts rather than going on this liturgical side trail. Well, I'm, I'm saying that just, just simply saying Athanasius agreed with sola scriptura doesn't really mean anything because my issue with sola scriptura is not the claim that the Bible is the authority. My issue is sola scriptura does not go far enough, and what it doesn't say is much more important than what it does say. Um, so a bit, sola scriptura yeah. has no guidance on how to interpret the scriptures. And in fact, I would say the, oh, go, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm cutting you off. Go ahead. And, and I would add that Sola Scriptura was created in a historical context that was used as a polemic against the authority of Rome. Well, yeah, and so that's a bit of a genetic fallacy there. I would say it, it goes all the way back to, to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and uh, that version of Sola Scriptura, the one taught in Scripture, um, that says also the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. The church is generally, generally reliable, has authority as Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 teach. It has the authority to bind and loose. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that version of Sola Scriptura, the biblical version, is what I'm defending. Um, not necessarily all of the abuses that you, you, you would have seen, but um, the way that it's practiced in my church and many other churches I know uh, in the PCA in the, and in the OPC and many other godly faithful denominations. And not all of them, you know, do it perfectly, but um, there are some abuses to anything as there are abuses to uh, certain Roman Catholic doctrines and Eastern Orthodox doctrines too. Um, so, I mean, that just goes to the territory of having sinful human beings in a church. Um, but I don't see anything by the resources of Sola Scriptura of it being theoretically problematic. Are you saying then that there's nothing theoretically problematic with Sola Scriptura? And if you're not saying that, then what is a theoretical problem with Sola Scriptura? On your view, I'm saying that sola scriptura, like when you when you use church fathers or the New Testament to support sola scriptura, you're doing so um, in 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 a sense anachronistically because neither the church fathers nor the New Testament use sola scriptura as a polemic against church authority. And that's the difference. Well, um, like, does, that, does that assume that uh, church authority, that in, that, in, in what you're saying, that you're assuming what you need to be proving, namely that church authority is on the equal level with Scripture and could never contradict Scripture, which, again, you know, assumes they're on the same level, which you said you can't actually show. You're not able to show that from the church fathers. Um, but actually, um, you just say they assume that, which I, 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 it's kind of – I don't really know how to respond to that, to be honest with you. I mean, 
you know, well, um, if you're not take, able to actually for give example, a specific instance of it, you know. Um, for example, in um, Clement of Rome's epistle to the Corinthians, first Clement, he is addressing uh, parishioners who threw out their priests. And the argument he uses, well, he uses a lot of arguments, but one of them, he specifically um, cites, um, I think it was Isaiah 60:17 from the Septuagint. And it says, I will appoint their bishops to righteousness and their deacons in faith. And he uses that to show how the structure of bishops and deacons have always been the case since Jewish custom. And he's using scriptures to defend the church structure and why the people should obey their priests and not rebel against them. So that's just one example of how like this problem of authority, this problem of, you know, the laymen rebelling against their priests and having the sense of congregationalism, how that then initiated the authority structures to step in and to stop that from happening. And that, that is, that is what I would call an anachronistic read if anything is. Um, Because of course you could say children obey your parents, but that doesn't mean that the parents uh, could never conflict with scripture. Of course, I tell my daughter to obey me. I, of course I could uh, many times daily, I, conflict with God's word because I'm sinful. Um, so, I mean, to say that you're kind of saying that that implies that the church and the bishops, I'm sorry, the bishops in scripture could never conflict, that is, I think, the anachronistic reading um, of that text. And first of all, I would say I, I do believe in bishops and deacons as a structure. Um, you know, if you look at uh, Titus chapter 1, uh, uh, presbyters or elders and, and bishops are used interchangeably to refer to the same thing. So, uh, you know, that, that structure I would agree with, and I would say, yeah, that they do have that authority, and generally uh, congregations are to respect and be submissive to the elders. Uh, I would say that as a Presbyterian. So I can uh, g- agree with Clement of Rome there and have no problem with that. So you still haven't shown um, that, 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 uh, that you can never have the church uh, conflict with, uh, w- with Scripture. Of course, it seemed to with... Uh, the Arian um, controversy, where most of the church was Arian for a great deal of time, and Athanasius was the Lone Ranger. So uh, that's where you get uh, Athanasius contramundum, right? That's where you get that phrase from, um, Athanasius against the world. So, uh, I mean, just historically, and I can't see any of the church fathers uh, teach that you have uh, the church and tradition on the same level as Scripture authoritatively, and um, I don't see why they, in principle, couldn't conflict at times as a father would conflict the scripture at times. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that the church, um, the church would ever conflict with orthodoxy. As you just mentioned, there was Arian controversies and times when the church was, uh, has fallen prey to it, but the Holy spirit is always at work within the church and always correct the error. And so there's, there's also like, it's not, it's not just who has the most knowledge 
like there's also a spiritual element at work within the church that that corrects these problems. But again, that's all in in the context of the church. Well, I I agree with that. Actually, I you know we can be brothers and then hold hands on that. I completely agree with that. Problem is that's nothing. There's nothing compatible with Protestantism about that statement. I would say. The same is true of the body of Christ, that in time uh, corrections will occur. And as it says in Matthew 13, the church starts off with a mustard seed and grows to be a massive um, massive tree. And I would say that's true numerically and spiritually of the church of Jesus Christ. So to me, it, it seems like uh, there, uh, you're, you're having these problems with Protestantism, and it seems like um, they're the same, either they're the same, Protest- they're the same problems with orthodoxy, same exact problems I have, you have, or it seems like they're not really problems or there's not really anything that can be substantiated here. So I'm just, I'm kind of confused. Uh, I'm not really, really clear what the sticking point is that would even make you go to the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's just not even, the arguments aren't even clear to me um, why someone like yourself would leave um, an evangelical Bible-believing church for this when they're simply no evidence, and it contradicts the gospel, justification by faith alone, and it contradicts uh, sola scriptura because the Eastern Orthodox Church does not hold the sola scriptura. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a standard Eastern Orthodox claim that, that they, they, they reject uh, such claims. So, I mean, uh, to me, I, I, don't really, I don't really get the angle you're, you're kind of taking on this. I'm, I'm kind of confused. Hey, well, when hey you Gary, say the word church, Yeah. Hey, Gary, uh, real quick. Yeah. Go ahead and take uh, two minutes uh, just to respond, wrap up to that, and then we're going to move on to uh, the canon. Do you, do you guys feel like you've spent enough time on, on this issue? Do you want more more time on this particular issue, or do you guys want to move to the canon? It's up to Gary. Whatever he'd like to do, I'm, I'm flexible. Um, I'll just, if you want more time, I mean, I'll give more. you your two minutes. Okay, that's fine. Um um, Let me know when you guys are ready to to move on, and Gary, I'll give you a minute or so to um, okay. to wrap up your thoughts on that. So go ahead. All right. Um, the one thing is, when you use the word church, you you're assuming a certain definition that I'm not. Like you use the church in in a way that means the invisible church, and I'm not. Like I grant in a broad sense that there is such a thing as an invisible church. But when I use the church, I'm pro- use the word church, I'm primarily talking about the visible church, you know, here on earth. And, and, you know, and I interpret that to mean the Orthodox church. So when I say that the Holy Spirit guides the church, I'm talking specifically about the Orthodox church and how, yeah, and I, even I'm though. I'm talking about church, church and churches visible church is, because in the New Testament you have church use and you have visible churches used in the plural. So I, I'm, I'm referring to both the visible and the invisible church, and I believe Baptist churches are churches and Presbyterian churches are churches. They're visible churches. And so Westminster Confession says there's less pure and more pure uh, expressions of the visible church is what I would say. So I, I think we are using it a bit differently, but there is some similarity, but I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I would say that, like, Protestantism as a structure uh, does not seem to have any historical evidence for it, um, for the Holy Spirit bringing any real unity 
I just see greater and greater fragmentation. And I'm saying as a whole, Protestantism as a whole, specifically in its ecclesiology, the structure there um, doesn't seem to have anything in place to um, combat or I should say fix uh, heterodox views. Uh, well, I guess, like, if I didn't like something the Eastern Orthodox Church taught, I could just leave the Eastern Orthodox Church and go to the Catholic Church or uh, the Oriental Orthodox Church. So, I mean, same same issue there. You could just leave a church. I think that happens still. And then you also have um, this fact that uh, not everybody in the Eastern Orthodox Church have the same beliefs. You know, I know Eastern Orthodox uh, thinkers who, when they hear the name David Bentley Hart, they get nauseous. <laughs> you know, they hate David Bentley Hart. You know, he's an Eastern Orthodox <laughs> guy. So there is divisions. There are schisms, um, at least interpersonal ones and in doctrinal ones in the Orthodox Church and how people will talk about how to speak about God and that sort of thing. And I'm sure you're aware of those. So the difference between you and me is that you guys have just – you guys don't divide over those things. You just guys kind of keep, keep everybody in the family happy. Whereas uh, in, in, you know, Baptist churches, they'll churches and denominations over that. So there is still, you know, disagreement in the Eastern Orthodox Church. I've met Eastern Orthodox that have different views on God, like I said, and um, you seem to be uh, you seem to be arguing differently than many of or, many individual Orthodox uh, believers. To be honest with you. Um, so there there is this, um, and I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you even actually admitted this. Um, you said you're more of a moderate Orthodox, and there's different degrees of people who hold different. Orthodox beliefs, so there really is mm-hmm. a great deal of uh, disunity in terms of mental states and beliefs in the Orthodox Church. And of course, you can leave an Orthodox Church and go to the Oriental or the Roman Catholic Church or the Set of Acantists. And so, many churches, many different views. Just like uh, I have many different churches and many different views. So I, I don't really see anything meaningful here. Is what I'm saying. Well, I mean, when I talk about unity, I'm not saying everyone believes the exact same thing on every single issue, like. Uh-huh. David Bentley Hart is not a heretic. You know, he's, he's he's not denying the Trinity. You know, you can't be Orthodox and deny the Trinity. Um, I would, but you I can met, be Protestant I've met Orthodox and deny who would say he's a heretic. <laughs> I've met Orthodox well, who would say Richard, Richard Swinburne's a heretic. They would say that. And they would say that David Bentley Hart's a heretic. So, but I guess, I guess, I guess they'd feel the church not do anything about it. But, I don't know. It's that's that's what I found. I, I found there's disagreements well, about what's a heretic too, in the Orthodox Church. They, they, they would have to prove that David Bentley Hart is not in communion with, like the Ecumenical Councils and what they said. But I, I personally do not see that to be the case, and I think that's unsubstantiated. But do you think Richard Swinburne's a heretic? Uh, I'm not as familiar with him. So I don't know. He, believe, he believes in three different substances. Um, that's his language. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have three different substances. Um, he's a tritheist. He's in communion with the, with the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, no one's done anything about it. Um, you know, so you see you see things like that, which someone you know blatantly holds the tritheism, which I know Eastern Orthodox would want to avoid that, and they would not say that the hypostasis are substances in their own right. Um, so, I mean, well, you have a guy I, like that who, who's an open theist, too. Um, it's just well, he, it's ironic to me, you know? There are people that can certainly be wrong and certainly be teaching something false. 
but one person doing that doesn't really mean anything. Like heresy becomes a problem when it invades the church, and then that's when a council is provoked to stop it from happening. So it's very different if, you know, all of a sudden half of the Orthodox Church is believing what this guy is believing. Rather than right, just, so just you, one you guys guy. don't 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 condemn individual heretics. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, Condemning, you'd be an individual heretic. Like I, I would not. I, I think I'm pretty confident in saying orthodoxy doesn't go around, you know, the Christian world and just condemning people as heretics. Her, okay, so you guys just kind of let, 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 let people people believe what they want. It sounds like so that that kind of unity is I don't think really from a Christian vantage point. That's not even a preferable form of unity, anyways. So, I mean, I, well, I, I can mean, take or leave that any day. The guy that you mentioned, like, yeah, the issues that he brings up would have to be corrected by his priest. Like that's that's on his personal spiritual father to correct that, or and you know, obviously the bishop. But that's not a wide scale problem within orthodoxy. Yeah, which is kind of the same thing we have with the Protestant churches. It's an individual pastor's pastor's response to correct false teaching, and so you sound like you got the same thing where you have people who can believe things that are really off the rails, and no one does anything about it. That happens in Baptist churches, and that happens in uh, Eastern Orthodox churches. So it's not, I'm not really getting it clear what's so significant about the form of unity that the Eastern Orthodox has over, say, I would have with the Southern Baptist. Um, so I, I, I just it's not even clear to me like why. This view is attractive. I'm, I'm just I'm, maybe I'm missing it, um, and you know I'm uh, maybe we're miscommunicating. That's a possibility, but I'm just not seeing it. That's fine. We can uh, keep moving on. Yep. All right. Good. Good. Uh, good exchange there, guys. Very good. Um, just uh, there are some people that are calling in. Um, we're not going to take questions on on this particular. Uh, show just because we want to give the guys uh, time. We got a lot on the plate that we're trying to trying to work through, and um, maybe we can we can have them back and do another show with questions. Uh, but um, the next hey, hey, section Devin? is yes, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I was wondering can I can I ask a question? Just I'm, I'm just curious uh, for Garrett. Can yep. I, is it all right if I ask a question about Eastern Orthodoxy and his views? I just want oh. to kind of understand, you know where he yeah. stands on, a, on an issue that I've been thinking about a lot. Sure, it, sure. Just, just, for, just for five that, minutes, we'll is that okay? On. Sure, that's fine with me. Gary, is that okay with you? No, I'll try my best to answer it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, so, uh, I mean, go ahead, Nate. Sure. So, so Gary, um, so the the essence-energy distinction, right? You you hold to that view, right? Um. I hold to a view of it. <laughs> okay, okay, no, that's fair, man. That's that's that's, that's all fair. Um, so, would you say that Gaudiusi or essence um, is entirely unknowable? Um, I would say um, what's called apophaticism is. Yeah is a necessary boundary uh to keep our um to keep our arrogance in check. I think sure. 
Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to, I wouldn't go too far with it. Um, and, and for those who don't know, um, apophaticism is primarily the acknowledgement that words fail, that language fails, and that God is still a transcendent reality rather than like in spite of the incarnation. So we can understand mm-hmm. God through the humanity of Christ, but we still do not understand the abstractness of the divine nature. Right. So, so I have, I've talked to Eastern Orthodox and they, they say that the essence is, un, is unknowable. You can't know anything about it. Um, and I've talked to about probably about 10 that have held that view I've talked to. Uh, and the, that would be like the majority of them uh, that I've had discussions with on these issues. Mm-hmm. So would you disagree with that? Would you say that the essence of God is unknowable or would you, would you agree or disagree with that statement? Um, in a sense, I would agree. Um, I think okay. um, when it talks about the essence of something, it's not talking about that which is observable. Um, so, for example, like Scripture says, Jesus is the image or icon of the invisible God. Mm-hmm. So we, our understanding of God is filtered through the humanity of Jesus. Now, just because we can see God through Christ in his human nature, that doesn't mean we now have this 100% revelation of what God is in his divine nature. Like we still do not know what it means for Christ to die. Like for, for, like divinity cannot die and yet Christ died in his humanity. We, we, we don't comprehend what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can just go by his human nature and how that is concretely articulated by God to us in his, in his what's called the divine condescension towards man. So that's probably how I would see it. Okay. So, so then, you would you would affirm then that God is in His essence, not as an, not as not in His energies, but in His essence, is entirely unknowable. If the essence is understood as um, the abstract divinity of God, then yes. Okay. Um, so this is sort of an issue I have with that. Um, if that's your that's okay. view, hold so. Um, so when you when I, when someone says I can't know anything about the essence of God, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think that's there's mean? at least go ahead. Like how do you interpret that? What what comes to your head when you hear that? Um, that the usia of God, the essence of God, not his energies but his essence, is unknowable, entirely unknowable, as you just said. His essence being beyond being and non being beyond categorization that's that's the eastern view right mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. yeah so that's what i'm that's what i'm referring to so um that god is uh in his in his essence is unknowable entirely unknowable well there's uh what's called uh that's that self-referentially incoherent because if you say i can't know anything about 
God's essence, well, you at least know one thing about that, namely that you don't know anything about God's essence. So it ends up being self-referentially incoherent, and this is why I personally believe that the Eastern Orthodoxy is not just false, but necessarily false, uh, because it's self-referentially incoherent. Um, to say that no. can entirely, God cannot be entirely known, um, or, I, sorry, is, I wouldn't is, go. Is, is, okay. Cool. I wouldn't go as far as to say that God is entirely unknowable. Like that's kind of misleading language. I would say you do not understand the Trinity. Okay, none of us do. We have certain glimpses here and there of what we think the Trinity is about, but at the end of the day, we don't know. So um, the Trinity is one of those things that's part of the divinity. I would say that's part of the essence of God. So, well, that's, that's uh, not, not the way I understand it from talking to Eastern Orthodox. They would distinguish between the usia, the hypostasis, and uh, the energies of God. Those are three distinct uh, aspects of God. Um, so I, I, I've never, I mean, they would say that you can know the particular hypostasis, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. But, but they would say the usia is beyond being, beyond existence and non-existence and it's entirely unknowable, which you just said actually about two minutes ago, but it sounds like they're changing now to say that it's, um, that it, that it's, it's not the case, that it is entirely unknowable, that, you're, that that's not your position. Um, so uh, it just sounds like to me like, yeah, that may, maybe you have a different view than pretty much every Eastern Orthodox I've, I've talked to other than David Bentley Hart, who's I know disagrees with this view. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting to show the differences in Eastern Orthodoxy can even be so starkly different, even on the nature of God, which I, I find kind of fascinating. I'm just saying that what we know of God is primarily communicated through Christ and specifically through his human nature. Like that is, that's the, that's the essential part of why God had to become incarnate is to have this relation with man. And so, that's that's my take on it. I mean, I, like I said, I don't speak for all of orthodoxy, but... Right. Yeah, I, I was just curious about that. But yeah, Devin, go ahead and... I just wanted to ask those questions briefly, but we can continue on with what, what you guys wanted to do. All righty. Um, the next uh, issue we're going to tackle, Gary, uh, you have on the problem of the canon. And this one uh, certainly comes up a lot. Uh, with both um, Orthodox and uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, You say there's no official Protestant canon. Martin Luther wanted to remove the book of James from his German translation, uh, calling it an epistle of straw. The only reason why many Protestants have the book of James in their Bible is because Philip Melanchthon talked Luther out of removing it. On what canonical authority did Luther base his presuppositions other than his own mind? If a Protestant suddenly declares the Apocrypha to be Scripture, on what authority do other Protestants say he's wrong? Protestant canon is only as exclusive as each individual Protestant declares it to be. So, Nate, I'll let you respond to that, and you guys uh, can have a have a discussion. Yeah, I find that perplexing. As I was reading on um, blog um, on your Patristics website just just this morning. 
And you said also the Houston Orthodox Church doesn't have an official canonical list on, on the blog. Uh, I mean, so mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why that would be, you know. So, I mean, I, do, do, you think that, do, the, do you think the Orthodox has an official canonical list of the books you guys believed are, you guys have an official closed no. can? Okay, so. No, again, because I, I don't think Orthodoxy needs it. Okay, well, I don't think Protestants need it either. <laughs> I mean, you see, like, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it seems like the cracks in the cracks in your shield, my shield, are the same in your shield. I don't. I guess I, if if that can be the case for you, why can't that be the case for me? Well, you, I mean, you're you're claiming that uh, scripture is, you know, everything you believe is limited to what's in the scriptures, and so what? Like, why not believe? Uh, in prayers for the departed, as the Maccabees and Tobit declare, like right, why not accept that because it's canon? Well, I, I don't right? think Maccabees is a part of the canon because of uh, it's not it's not in the original Jewish book. So I just wouldn't accept uh, prayers to the dead because that's not what the Jews accepted as part of their canon. That's not what Jesus accepted as part of his canon. And well, you know, that's since, debatable. Um, what's that? That's debatable, though. Because Hanukkah celebrations, uh, oh, oh. yeah, Hanukkah um, celebrations, so, they have prayers for the departed. Uh, uh, what celebrations? Hanukkah. Y- yeah, so so there's there's a Mishnah and there's Jewish traditions, but it what it wasn't it wasn't a part of the, the Jewish accepted scriptures. So just because the Jews have a belief, it it doesn't mean that they they accepted those. Um, those books as a basis for that belief. But um, Jesus so you have to show that that was the basis for their, for, for, for their belief. Um, and, and, and another thing is, if it's debatable that the Jews did accept that, then can you give me any um, uh, first century Jew, well, you, it can be Philo even, Philo or, or uh, who's actually very Greek, believe it or not, and does not indicate any indication of accepting um, the Apocrypha, or the Deuterocanonical books, Give me any first century Jew, any evidence that suggests that in the law, the prophets, and the writings, um, that those deuterocanonical Deuter- books were included, and that um, they, 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 were, they, were, they were part of that. Because that's what Jesus gives in the last chapter of Luke. He says the law, the Psalms, which was the first part of the, of the writings, and the prophets, which was a threefold division in the, in the uh, Jewish Old Testament. And and if you can give me any reference, first century early reference, the Jews thought those were a part of their canon, Old Testament canon. Um, I, I mean, I, I I don't know what I'll give you, but you know, I guess if the expression goes, I'll build you a bridge, you know, but that's a bit condescending. I'm kind of messing around a bit, but I mean, yeah, I mean, in other words, I would I, I would be shocked if you could provide any any reference to that point, to the point that. Um, those Old Testament books were included in those threefold Jewish divisions, which were accepted by uh, the Pharisee party, which, by the way, you know, Paul, Paul was. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to give you any explicit references aside from the, the implicit evidences, like how the Sadducees reference, you know, ex- an explicit reference to Sarah from Tobit, um, but like you, you would probably just say that that's not 
explicitly saying that COVID was canon, but I mean, uh, well, well, that, there's that evidence would, there would, if would, you accept. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have let you finish up there. Go, go ahead. I I apologize for cutting you off there, but that's right. I'm just saying that there's at least evidence there that reveals that these texts were uh, widely known. Oh, oh yeah. So that kind of goes to prove my point because, you know, um, the, I mean, scholars grant, New Testament scholars grant that the Sadducees only held to the first five books of, uh, of the Old Testament, the law. Um, they rejected the prophets. They rejected the writings. Um, so um, that they would cite something from the Apocrypha, and, uh, and, and, and yet they wouldn't take that as Scripture. So that proves that you can cite something from a source or hold something from a source and not take that source to be scriptural. So, I mean, you know, we see this in the, uh, in the New Testament, uh, in Jude. You have a uh, citation of Enoch, but uh, no one thinks Enoch was canonical. Um, so, I mean, that, the I mean Ethiopian just Orthodox a citation. Church, uh, What's that? The Ethiopian Orthodox Church does see Enoch as canonical. Oh, oh and that would be a different... A, a different uh, is, are they in communion with the Oriental? Is that right? Um, that I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay, so you're not sure if you're in communion with them or not, is what I'm saying. No. So you, you don't hold that view, though, right? Um, Enoch is a part of the canon? Well, that would get into other topics about what I believe the canon to mean. Okay, so you don't know if that's part of the canon is what you're saying. Okay, well, um, well then I'll drop that point. Um, but, yeah, uh, I mean, i just give you another example, one that I'm, I know you'll instantly accept is from Acts 17 where they cite a poet, a um, pagan poet. You don't think that mm-hmm. that's a part of the canon. So, I mean, there you go. No. I'm making, <laughs> mm-hmm. If you want an example, I guess that's a, one that we can all kind of agree on. But my point being is that, yeah, the, that just easily accepted the first five books of Scripture, and, of course, they could cite something, and you could cite anything. Um, and that doesn't mean you thought that was a part of the scriptures. So uh, I, that's why I think that's, rather than undermining my point, actually supports my point. Um, so that would, that would be roughly what I'm trying to say. So, uh, but anyway, well, I, mean, I, I guess, I they guess would, I'm they wouldn't be, The yeah. Sadducees wouldn't be bringing up uh, Tobit to people who didn't think Tobit was relevant just like Paul didn't bring up the poets if he didn't think, you know, he wouldn't bring up the poets if he wasn't speaking to people who actually put some stock into them. Yeah. And again, that goes back to the, to the fallible authority, or you can reference, I reference things in my sermons at a popular level to connect with the audience. I mean, there's a lot of different explanations you can give of that, but nothing is really clear substantiated by that. Um, But Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still, I'm still at a miss as to why, okay, I, by the way, I actually disagree with you on this. I think we do have an official declaration of the canon, um, uh, it, at least on the, on the ecclesiastical level that I'm involved with PCA. If you go to Westminster 1-1, I'm sorry, not 1-1, but the first chapter of the Westminster Confession, we have an official canon statement of, we think what books belong in the Bible, and that would be all the earliest uh, New Testament documents that all New Testament scholars date to the first century. And then on top of that, you get um, the books that... Uh, the first century Jews accepted as the Old Testament and who Jesus Christ himself accepted as the Old Testament. So that's a, that's a canon, that's a fallible canon list. It's an official statement to the public. 
about what the PCA holds to. So I would say I do have an official canon list, but I guess it goes down to your definition of official, right? Like, what do you mean by that? That could be a part of it. Like, what does it mean for you to say that a canon list is official? Um, if you mean by official, infallible authority, well, then obviously I don't think the church has that, so I don't think a official canon list could be possible, given my view of the Bible and the church authority. So, um, But, yeah, I, what, is it, what do you mean by official in the first place in your blog and that kind of thing? Well, when I talked about Protestantism, I wasn't saying that there exists no denomination that has for itself an official canon. I'm saying Protestantism at large does not have a universal canon for all Protestants. So, like, a Baptist does not necessarily have to agree with a Presbyterian's, you know, official canon list. That, and that's the only point I was making with that. Right, and you guys have a canon list, and um, it's not official. Um, but, you know, of mm-hmm. course, that's agreed upon by the Oriental and by the Roman Catholic Church. And So what? I mean, there's always going to be disagreements, and disagreements doesn't, don't undermine the truth of things. I mean... Uh, I've got my degree in philosophy, and uh, one of the things you'll find is that people disagree about religions, about whether or not they exist, about the nature of the external world, time, space, reality, all of those things. It um, doesn't mean there's no truth in the matter or that we can't have truth because there's disagreements. So I, I, don't, I guess I don't really see the relevance of disagreements because uh, one of the things you learn studying academics is that, yeah, people disagree or can disagree just merely about everything. So, so I guess, yeah, I mean, so what? You know, I guess it's my thought is, yeah, well, we got these these, these uh, canonical lists, books here, and the PCA, and that's my that's a that's my uh, church uh, church I submit to authoritatively. Um, uh, that's that's their list, and I I go by that. So I have a canon list, and it's I would say it is fallible authority, and I'm bound to it ecclesiastically speaking. So I don't really. So see what the, what would you uh, what would you say? Like, what is your your understanding of what canon means? What makes something canonical? Um, yeah, something that, that is the uh, written word of God is what makes something canonical. If it weren't the written word of God, how do you it know canonical. it's... And how, how, like, what is, what is the measuring means of determining whether something is written from God in your view? Oh, I, yeah, I would say there's three things. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. You can use all of them as a cumulative case, but you can. And I, I think in any any one of these individually are sufficient to determine what books belong in the canon. Now, when I say determine, there, I mean epistemologically. Just like you have to determine which church is true, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental mm-hmm. Orthodox. You know, the, you you determine that. You you make a personal, private, human, fallible decision to follow one of those churches. And so I'm, I'm making a personal, private, uh, fallible human decision to uh, pick out, you know, which church I'm going to be a part of and which, you know, the books of the Bible. So how do I know that? It, so I would say three things. One um, is a simple sort of Jesus says in John 10, his sheep will hear my voice. And the voice of Christ is in, I would say, all of Scripture. And a sheep, uh, namely, I think I'm, a, I'm part of a sheep, hear his voice. And uh, that's why Jesus can quote the Old Testament scriptures and hold people responsible without even, you know, talking about canon lists and that kind of thing. He would hold them responsible to the scripture as if they would know without getting a canon list. There was no official, you know, uh, canon list by the time Jesus was around. Josephus came later, as far as we know. So 
Jesus would just quote scripture, people would know that it's God's voice speaking to them. And Jesus says, my, my sheep will hear his voice, and that the, God's word, if God is speaking to you, is evident, because just as when I speak to my daughter, she knows it's me speaking to her. So that's one way, and that's the way probably most believers know. The second way is that the church is a pillar and buttress of truth, and that the church throughout history has, even your church actually agrees with me on the books, um, you just guys add a few more to them. Um, you would agree with all the books we have. Um, and so uh, I would say that the church accepts generally these books. The church is generally reliable. The church is a pillar and buttress of truth. And so because of the church authority, um, people can accept the canon on that basis. But, of course, you'd be viewing it as a fallible authority, right, looking at the general voice of the fathers and the Christian believers throughout uh, the ages. The third reason is actually more of a, a philosophical evidential form of it, which is that, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's abundant historical evidence for it, and um, that authenticates Jesus' claims, and, uh, and one of his claims was that he was going to have followers that would lead, lead his people into his truth, and his followers wrote down scripture. And so what, guess, what books... Are, if I can go ahead. interject here, yeah. I guess sure. what I'm mainly asking is, how, like, if you were to take, let's say, what, what you perceive to be a canonical text, and then mm-hmm. set that next to what you think is a non-canonical text. What do you do? Like, what do you do differently when you look at those two texts? How do you, like, how do you treat those texts differently in your in your met- personal methodology and your your daily life? Uh, you mean the apocrypha? It could be that or, or anything that you don't think is canon. Sure. Well. When I read the Apocrypha in my undergrad, just obvious to me it wasn't God speaking to me. It wasn't. It wasn't. It, it seemed totally different. The theology, the, the claims it made for itself, um, it, its character seemed totally different than the Gospel of John. It seemed totally different than the Old Testament scriptures. And so. And then when somebody um, disagrees by, with you on that point, then what? Yeah, I mean, you know, what, what if someone disagrees with you that the Roman Catholic, that the Eastern Orthodox Church is the true Church? I mean, you would just you would have to argue with them, wouldn't you? No, I'm saying like, okay, so somebody else reads it and says, you know, my experience of this text confirms to me that these are canonical books. So like, right. what else do you, how else do you interact with these texts that make them different? Yeah, so so you're asking me if so, say I go to one person, they say, I feel like this is God speaking to me. I'm saying, I don't feel like that's the case. I, in other words, that's not it's not self-attesting the way the other scriptures are, and the person's like, no, I disagree. These verses are self-attesting, or these, this book is self-attesting. How do you resolve that conflict? Is that what you're asking me? I'm asking, like, so you think something is canonical, so let's say, let's say you have mm-hmm. the book of Matthew, and then next to it you uh-huh. have uh, Tobit. Um, when you read the book of Matthew what are you doing differently than when you read Book of Tobit? Like, what makes something different when it's canonical? Um, well, so, the same as it would be if I were reading the Bhagavad Gita versus the Bible. Uh, the difference would not be what I'm doing differently, but what God is doing differently. Um, so God would be uh, testifying to my heart that this is, this is me speaking to you and forming, you know, I believe in, you know... Um, 
proper functionalism, Alvin Plantinga's kind of properly basic beliefs, and I would say that I would have proper basic belief formation, this is God speaking to me, and that was through the operation of the Holy Spirit working on my cognitive faculties to produce beliefs that, hey, this is God speaking to me. Whereas that wouldn't be the case with the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Enoch. Um, so you're so saying that, that you're, would be the difference right there. Yeah. So your definition of canon is the text that when you read it, God speaks to you. Is that what you're saying? No, no, that, that you're, you're confusing epistemology with ontology there. So I'm saying that's one of the ways, one of the ways, there's many ways you know it. There's, there's historical evidences. There's tons of reasons why I know the, the Bible is the Bible. But that's just, I'm just getting, talking about one of the ways, one of the ways. And one of the ways I but know, I, yeah. I, I'm talking about primarily, like, its impact on your your Christian experience, like, like why, why can't you do the same things with a text like Enoch than, than the gospel of Matthew? Like, how is that impacting your Christian life differently? Well, one I treat as the word of God because it obviously testifies itself as God's word. The other one I, I, I don't, I don't take as authoritative in any, any way at all. So, so when you treat something as different impact, yeah. So, so when you treat something as canon, that means that it's authoritative over your life, and something that is not canon is not authoritative. Yeah, not infallibly authoritative. Infallibly authoritative. Not infallibly. The church fathers could be could be authoritative for me when I read it, but they're not infallibly authoritative. Okay. That would be the difference, I would say. But I would, I would not just know it through the experience of the Holy Spirit and through the belief formation of me objectively knowing it's God's word, but I would know that also through the historical evidence of the resurrection and that authenticates his followers and his followers wrote books and the books, earliest books we have, the New Testament. And Jesus resurrected and affirms his claims. One of his claims was that the law, the prophets, and the writings were the, uh, were the Old Testament scriptures, I believe what Jesus says, over the Oriental uh, Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church. So, yeah, um, that's that's going to be kind of why I would believe in the uh, Protestant uh, canon, which you know I think people accept, but people want to add more books to them, just as the Mormons do and um, and uh, other other Christian um, uh, sects. Okay, well that's helpful. Yeah. All right, guys, we've got about. Uh, 30 minutes. Gary, we've covered a lot in your article. Uh, one of the issues, if you wouldn't, if you're up for it, uh, one of the big divides is the issue of uh, sola fide, that is justification by faith alone, and we haven't really covered that. Um, are you mm-hmm. open to have a discussion with that for the next 30 minutes? Sure. Yeah. Okay, um, Nate, if you, I'll kind of pass it to you. If you want to ask Gary some questions, you guys can just uh, have a conversation. Yeah. Are you good with so, that, Nate? I should have asked you as well. Are you good oh, with, no, yeah. do you want to go that route? If you guys are comfortable with it, I'm I'm flexible here. You guys definitely were cool in letting me kind of go down my rabbit trail and the essence energy distinction. So I appreciate you guys doing that and putting up with me. So, yeah, I'm flexible for this. It's definitely fine. All right. Yeah. Um, so, Gary, um, 
the Eastern view of justification, right? My my understanding, reading um, you know the official statements from the Greek Orthodox Church and everything like that, is that God can only declare you just when you're actually intrinsically morally just. Is that right? Um, it's it's complicated because of the way Orthodox theology perceives time and the concept of time. It, it's time is almost non-existent, and um, so to say that you're only justified. How did you put it? You were declared, in my view, the Bible. The biblical mm-hmm. view, I'm declared righteous by by God when I am ungodly, when I am intrinsically unrighteous. That's 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 a biblical view. And by the way, your view of time, um, there are different orthodox views on that. I just want to point that out that yours is not monolithic by any means. There's disagreements on that too. Uh, I know orthodox that are a theorist and b theorist on time. So. Um, well, I don't know if that's necessarily I'm, the case. I'm going based on the Orthodox liturgy, according to the liturgies we use today, like St. John Chrysostom. It says repeatedly, uh, when it comes to past events, it uses the present terminology of today. So I'm just speaking from a liturgical standpoint. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess I, I guess it comes down to how you interpret the liturgy, right? Um, maybe they're just doing that for experiential reasons, for impact. They're not actually giving a theoretical statement. So that's your fallible, personal, human opinion of that. So I guess that's just that's fine. But I don't. I know Orthodox. I don't hold that view at all. Um, but yeah. So so then, you, would you would you say then the Orthodox Church agrees with that though? That when God declares me just or righteous, I can be unjust or unrighteous. You, th- you think the Orthodox Church accepts that? I think, um, and again, this is just based on my current um, state of what I've researched, which I don't know everything, but um, it seems to me that justification in an ultimate sense is primarily eschatological, that um, we are justified primarily at the end of time on the day of judgment. Okay. Um, what do you do with Romans 4 or 5, which seems to talk about um, Abraham and us being presently justified? It says, uh, pull it up here, Romans 4 or 5. It says, uh, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And it goes in verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he's justified, and David was justified, and Abraham was justified when he believed in God. And it's saying here that in this life, you can be ungodly. You don't work for it. Because, you know, the one who does not work, he's not doing anything to accomplish it. But trust in him and him who justifies the ungodly, or declares righteous the ungodly, that's what the Greek word dikao means there, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that, that his faith is counted as righteousness. So he is ungodly, and he is being declared righteous. Does the Orthodox right, Church I mean, believe that? He, 
Paul is still speaking about people who have already lived and died. And he's saying that he's looking retrospectively on the past and saying that, you know, he's assuming people know the whole story. He's not giving a formula that this is what makes Abraham, you know, self-aware of his own justification. Yeah, two, two problems with that. First is that the text gives you the background. In verse 3, it says, For the scriptures say Abraham believed God was counted him as righteousness. That was during while he was alive. Second thing is that um, I don't think you would Wait, want can to you say, say... Can you say that again? Um, I'm sorry, that was a bit too fast. Um, Romans 4.3 says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness, quoting from... Uh, the Genesis during his life when he hasn't died yet. He's alive during that time in that quotation. And then secondly, um, you have here that they're justified when they're ungodly. Now, I'm pretty sure you don't want to say that Abraham, when he is uh, in glory, or whether it's resurrected in the intermediate state, whatever you want to put him at, that at that point, like, he's ungodly. Um, you'd want to say, I, that's what all Orthodox I've ever talked to want to say, is that God declares him just when he's actually just when he gets to that final future point he's not going to be unjust anymore or unrighteous he will be righteous and so god declares him righteous when he's actually righteous but here in this text talking about abraham's life uh where he, and he actually lived and walked around uh before he was glorified or anything like that it says that he believed in god and was declared righteous and it says to the one who does not work nothing you do but believes in him who declares righteous and godly his faith is counted as righteousness. So I don't get how that future justification thing is supposed to answer this text at all, and it clearly is talking about this life. Like I said, when when that text about Abraham was written, it was not written when Abraham was still alive. Abraham did not have a Pauline formula to be aware of his own justification, and I don't think that's what Paul was trying to do in writing that. He wasn't trying to to have this little method of suddenly having your mental faculties unlocked to, to your own justification. I yeah, think Paul is speaking. Sure, but within, in Romans 3, it talks about those who have faith in Christ. Um, and in, in this life, it's, it's not saying in the future. It's saying that they're, they're justified. And in Romans 5.1, it even says um, that um, that having been justified by faith, you now have peace with God. The context is obviously talking of how people in this point in time, um, that's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, now no condemnation, and now means now, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's present in that, in that sense. And so, um, yeah, but you're also in, talking about the same guy who also went to the third heaven, and when he got back, he was afraid that he would not keep the, the course and be disqualified. So you have to yeah, I, I, understand yeah, yeah, that in the context. You're talking about First Corinthians nine there. So you're going to a different you're going to a different text. You're not addressing my argument. You're just going to a different text. And I mean, I, we can talk no, about I'm, that I'm text. Saying, no, no, no problem. I have no problem talking about that text in First Corinthians nine. Um, and I think that text is reference to being disqualified from a particular type of crown that he did during his evangelistic ministry. I think there's degrees of reward that saints can, uh, can get to the grace of God. So I think that's what it's talking about. That's a, that's a different text than we're talking about right now. So I don't know if you address the argument of Romans 
which is clearly talking about those presently who have faith in Christ and who have peace with God, have now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, it's talking about Abraham and, and uh, in his life when he believed in God, and it was declared to him righteous as righteousness in the narrative. It's talking at a simultaneous moment. It's not talking about okay, he believed and then a hundred years later he was he was declared righteous. It doesn't say that, and so and that's not how Paul views it, and you can see that clearly because he talks to the uh, saints, saying you know having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Um, we have peace with God, excuse me, and we're now under no condemnation. So. All of these things speak to a present reality, and so I don't think you've really answered my question. Does the Eastern Orthodox Church hold that can can God declare you righteous when you are ungodly? I would I would say that you the connotations you put on that the Orthodox Church doesn't believe, but in a sense okay. that um, that man can be justified. Uh, in in the sense that Abraham was, then yeah. But my my qualification on that is we don't have this formula that we now know that we are justified in the present and that has all these promises attached to it that maybe you might have. Well, I would say that person is declared righteous and he's ungodly. That's what it. That's what the text says in Romans 4, 5. So he's righteous. Um, and uh, uh, there, there's, there's a, a text in Romans 8, 1 that says, there's now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus, referring then to the elect. You can bring a charge against God's elect. So the righteousness secures, then, it seems like Romans 4, 5, secures this sort of, uh, this sort of guarantee of salvation, and uh, that's just not like an arbitrary. Uh, you don't yeah, know what will but, happen fifty uh, years from now. Yeah, but according to uh, verses six through uh, seven uh, or eight, that doesn't matter because it says here it says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, and blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, that is a terrible, uh, I would say, translation. I know Greek, a terrible translation of the Greek text, because in actual Greek, if you were to look at verse 8, what it does is something amazing, because it uses uh, a double negation of the possibility. It's a uh, O-U, right, and, and then a may. So you have a double negation and then, and then a may, which is a negation of the possibility of God ever imputing or counting your sins against you. So that the person who is declared righteous has the same blessing as David, which is that it is impossible, it is impossible for your sins to ever be imputed to you. Impossible. And that is what I submit to you. That is really good news. Now, it's unfortunate the Eastern Orthodox Church does not have such good news. But that is what the Bible teaches, is that I don't, it doesn't matter what was in my future. It says in Romans uh, 4.8 that it's impossible for God to impute me my sins. So if I mess up in the future, I have the assurance of God's grace. Now, I'm sure what you're going to say is, well, then that means you're just going to go out and start hitting the bottle and, you know, punching babies or something. I don't know, right? No. I'm going to be like a, like, would, like immoral or something. But if you were to say I that. I would say salvation so isn't static. Like, yeah, 
It's not it's okay. not static, it's relational. It's contingent upon your relationship with Christ. So yeah, which, this idea that justification is all about the stamp of approval and then you're just good to go, that's just not not what orthodox that's not how orthodoxy interprets the scriptures. I know you keep saying that's what the Bible says, but you're presupposing your own interpretation to be correct. Yeah, and also the interpretation of other church fathers too. So, uh, you know, and, you, that, and that's, by the way, your interpretation of how orthodoxy interprets the Bible. So you're still interpreting orthodoxy, too. Um, you're, it's your fallible personal human opinion that that's how orthodoxy interprets the Bible. It's, by the way, it's mine, too, so I guess we agree on that, you know. But um, the point is that, yeah, I mean, that, that, that move can work equally well against you there. But, I mean, the bottom line is that, yeah, that seems to be the most reasonable interpretation of the text uh, right there. It, it says it's impossible for your sins to be imputed to you. Um, and it, it, it says that you're declared righteous when you're ungodly. That's what the Greek word dikaio means and dikaiosune. Um, they don't have this sort of transformational meaning that occurs in Rome and occurs even in the East, um, on my understanding. So I don't, I don't, by the way, I don't think that um, salvation is static, but I do think it's guaranteed uh, in the sense that we are, uh, we are spared from the wrath of God forever the moment we're declared righteous. So it's static in that sense, but it's also dynamic in the sense that we are being saved from our sins daily. I, we grow in our sanctification, and that we'll be finally and totally delivered from our sins, our simple lifestyles, when we're glorified in the resurrection and even during the intermediate state. So I, I believe also that salvation in, in that broader sense is past, present, and future, but I think the past part is is the is point we look to, and which matters the most, which is that in, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Um, and I know you don't believe in the wrath of God in the way I do. I can I can tell you that much. Um, mm-hmm. You believe it's like it's like love, or you know, it's not really wrath. But uh, when I read in Romans twelve, that vengeance is mine, I will I will repay. And Hebrews ten twenty seven through twenty nine, that it, that uh, that God's wrath will be burning and will will come against sinners, and it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Uh, I, you know, it seems pretty clear to me there, and also hilasterion, which means uh, turning aside of divine wrath. That's what the Greek word means in Romans 3. So I don't, I, I guess, I, I read that on your blog. I was a bit, you know, uh, interested in that. I've heard that, of course, from my Orthodox friends, but uh, was interested to hear that you you've hold a, a view like that as well. But ultimately, yeah, we're saved from the wrath of God in the past, is, is my view, and uh, I do think that's a biblical view, and I, I just haven't seen a good response other than saying that's not what the church thinks, uh, and a, a reasonable interpretation of Romans 4, 5 through 8. Did you want to get into that discussion of the wrath of God and hell and stuff, or was that something oh, that uh, if, you just wanted yeah, to end I there? Mean, I, I mean, if, you're, if, if you have nothing more to say or to address or give a a good uh, answer to Romans 4-5, if you can't provide one of those uh, responses to Romans 4-5, give a good interpretation of it, then yeah, we can move on. Yeah, I mean, I think I pretty much made it clear that I would interpret, uh, like I made it clear I interpret those passages differently than you, but um, we could talk about the wrath of God. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you, I mean, I mean, are you saying Dick Io and as the best, do you think those Greek words mean something differently than what the Greek words mean? I mean, words, I, I don't words think, mean something. I, I don't think any language 
has inherent meaning. I don't think words interpret themselves. So I don't think learning Greek has anything to do with anything. But oh, okay, well, <laughs> that statement you just said had had uh, meaning, and I just interpreted it. So <laughs> I don't know if that's self-referentially right, coherent but, but or I'm what. Saying, but, uh, I'm saying that just know, because... Kind of, kind of an interesting thing to say, you know? I'm saying just because, you know, Greek doesn't mean that everyone who knows Greek will come to the same interpretation as you. Um, well, actually, Chosa Sitzmeyer comes to the same interpretation of me, and he's a Roman Catholic. Um, so it's, it's it, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, That's it's fine. saying that... Not saying Joseph it can Sitzmeyer happen, but... a, Yeah, it, it does happen. But um, my, my point being is that um, words mean something, and yeah, if, if, if you have to hold a view that is incompatible with the meaning of Greek words, which you can look to any lexicon. They're not like Eastern Orthodox biased or something like that. Um, you know, they, they, you, you look to those lexicons and, you know, you can learn the same thing I'm saying to you right now. Uh, my point being is that uh, words do have meaning because we have lexicons and you can look up those meanings. And what you'll find is that the meaning of the guy Asune and ungodly there that's used in Romans 4, 5 is not the meaning uh, that uh, uh, that's consistent with Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay, we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. <laughs> yep, kind of kind of Ron Burgundy style is the way I like it. So, okay, that's fine. Um, so, um, yeah, so we, we can go to the Wrath of God if, if you and Devin are comfortable with that. Um, you know, I've enjoyed this conversation so far. So, appreciate yeah, your uh, magnanimous character. So. Yeah, guys, let's take about uh, eight minutes, and then we'll give you guys each uh, a minute or two to, to conclude. So, Gary, I'll let you go ahead and, and uh, examine Nate or ask uh, Nate questions, or, or Nate, you can ask him, whatever whatever you guys prefer. Nate can okay. ask me questions. Oh, did you want to talk about the wrath of God? I, I thought that was something you wanted to hit. Um, is that sure. turning – because I, I don't want to just talk about the topics that I want to talk about. I want to make sure, you know, you get in your good no, time I mean, I, and that kind of thing. And I, I, don't, I don't want to dominate the conversation as I may have been. So, you know, feel free. No, that's fine. I'll I'll just respond to your questions. It's totally fine. Okay. Yeah. So, um, in uh, I'm going to Romans Romans 12 here, and um, so your view is that. Do you think God has vengeance upon those who reject him? Um, I would say it's it's not like... So Orthodox theology is more holistic uh-huh. and not like... It's, it's not articulated specifically from one book of the Bible like Romans. So there's a lot of anthropomorphism and anthropophatism within orthodox theology. So uh, when it talks about the wrath of God and vengeance and, and all of that, it's speaking from the perspective of man looking up to the divine and not the other way around. So it's speaking from, as orthodox would understand it, a subjective perspective rather than an objective reality. Okay, that's interesting. So uh, that actually brings me to Romans 18 through 20. I'm just going to ask you this really quick. I know we're running out of time. Uh, appreciate you willing to talk with me this long. So um, Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness oppress the truth. So you're saying that's anthropomorphic, right? I'm saying that the the wrath of God is not understood to be a literal human anger as one might think in, in hearing that. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a literal human anger. I would say it's a divine anger. Yeah. Yeah, so and, so that's and what it says say the wrath of God. It doesn't it doesn't say human anger, it says the wrath of God. So it would be God's right, anger. Right. So you so, so you take that anthropomorphically? In verse I'm eighteen there, Romans one eighteen. I'm saying that the wrath of God is a it, it's not like I'm speaking more to the connotations that one would think after hearing that. Uh-huh. Like it's not an it's not an active punishing like as if God had like a whip in his hand and was whipping somebody. It's it's the wrath of God is giving people over to what they want. It's, it's um, a passive sense. Yeah. So so did Jesus when he died on the cross, um did 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 he have that? Did he did he did he uh did he have that sin in his heart where he did what he wanted and that's that was a punishment in the cross? Or did he not think he was punished in the cross? By God in any, any, any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I would not say that Jesus took the the wrath of the Father, and if that means the Father is punishing Jesus. So when it says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Jesus is, you know, the Father is not really forsaking him. Is Jesus lying, or is he telling the truth there? Well, he's quoting some, but. Uh, so he, he, he doesn't. He's just quoting it just just randomly. There's no no meaning behind it. No, he, he, in the state of anguish, he's saying that. But that's when he is taking when it, when it says he's taking wrath for sin. It's 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 he's experiencing a a torment that a sinner would experience. And so is that like giving into sin? sin? Like, is that like giving giving into sin? Because that's kind of how you define it. It's kind of giving over to sin and selfishness and sin being its own torment. But it, Jesus is sinless, right? So how could he be doing that on the cross? I'm not sure I understand what what you're saying. So, so yeah, you you think it's not so when sinners go to hell, it's their own sin that they're getting punished for, right? That their their own their own sin is leading to their own torment, right? Hell, according to the Orthodox view, which is largely uh, largely from the uh, articulations of Saint Isaac the Syrian, would say that um, the experience of hell, which is torment, uh, it, it's being tormented by the um, by the presence of God in His glory and love. So, and so you're saying on the cross that Jesus was tormented by the the glory and presence of God, and that's why he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" No, because I don't believe that Jesus went experienced hell. Oh, you don't. Um, no, well, because you have to sin. Yeah. So, oh, that's so. Yeah, that's that's why you have to reject that whole. I see. I see. That's why you have to reject the whole propitiation theory of the atonement altogether, you have to kind of discard that. And I don't know how would you'd make sense of statements like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think in Galatians 3.13 it says 
that um, the law, if it's not followed, has a curse to it. It has a curse to it. And that Jesus took that curse in our place. The um, Greek word hupere there means, uh, in that context, it's a Christological and soteriological context, a salvation in Christ-like context, refers to uh, a substitution, according to Daniel Wallace and Greek grammar beyond the basics. So that Jesus took the curse, the law brought human beings on the cross, according to Galatians uh, 3. So, I mean, See, that's just so what the Bible straightforwardly teaches. Let me clarify. Do you believe that Jesus experienced hell? Yep. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Without qualification. See? Okay. I did not know that. That's the standard so, Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism Protestant view. Um, and so that's, so uh, like yeah, that's what the view, Hitler, I think. What Hitler is experiencing right now, you, I mean, you think Jesus experienced that? Yeah, he's an infinite being, so he can take an infinite amount of punishment in uh, the mere so duration of the cross. Well, well, you can't have more than an infinite. An infinite is an infinite, you know. No, no, um, no. So more than Hitler's punishment. Oh yeah, yeah. Jesus suffered far more than probably any human creature, as I would guess. Yeah, on the cross, such extreme pain for my redemption and for all those who trust in Jesus, and that's why he's paid so much, and so I owe him so much. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that would be a point of difference there. You, you were never taught that in the Presbyterian You said you were Reformed. You never heard that before in the Reformed Church? That was ever preached to you? Um, I, I mean, that is, like, that, that was not something, like, I, I was taught the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ, but that was never taught to be the same thing as, um, essentially God sending Jesus to hell. Yeah, well, hell is the punishment of God's wrath. So, yeah, that would be the same thing. And that's in the first, I think, 20 lines of the Heidelberg Catechism, verse 20, 20 question. That's taught. So that's like mm-hmm. a standard well, Protestant Reformed theology, that's, yeah. That's new to me. Yeah. Okay, well, gentlemen, we are at the at the two-minute mark. Uh, Gary and, and Nate, just want to pre- uh, appreciate you guys both. Really thank you for coming on. Been a great discussion, yeah, thanks for having me. and uh, yeah, the podcast will be up and people can hear it. Gary, feel free to uh, link it on your podcasts, and uh, good to go. So, Gary, take a, take one minute, wrap up, and then Nate will give you one minute to wrap up. Um, well, I just want to say thanks for for talking to me, and I appreciate your your hospitable approach uh, to people who disagree with you and um, I hope that I provided some clarity. I know I'm not that I'm the best person to speak to on these things, but I was, I'm always willing to engage in discussion and a friendly dialogue. And I hope we could continue having that. Yeah. Well, thank right. you, Gary. Thank you, Gary. I, I appreciate, you know, just your general friendliness towards me. And, uh, you know, I asked you some few pointed questions throughout our discussion, but, you certainly had a, a caring, nice demeanor, and I appreciate you spending your time in your afternoon talking to me about things that I consider to be very important and, you know, taking me seriously and, uh, you know, having a cool head about it. And I, I really appreciate you and uh, want to know how much I enjoyed discussing this stuff with you. All right, and uh, appreciate uh, you guys 
joining us again, and maybe we can do something like this again in the future. Um, if you have not liked our Facebook page, you can go to Facebook, and we are Theology Matters with the Palouse. And uh, Nate has done uh, a few debates on our shows in the past, and uh, you can find our odd, our um, old podcasts and archives there, and uh, would invite you to come check it out. So thanks for listening, and uh, until next time, God bless. God bless. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.